Any views and opinions expressed are those of the authors and or participants and do not necessarily reflect the views, policy, or position of the Gastroenterology Learning Network or HMP Global, its employees, and affiliates. Welcome to Gut Check, a podcast from the Gastroenterology Learning Network. My name is Brian Lacey. I'm a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Linda Wynn, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Dr. Wynn is an expert in the field of motility disorders, especially that of gastroparesis, and is one of the authors of the recently published American College of Gastroenterology Guideline on Gastroparesis published in late 2022 in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Dr. Wynn, welcome. What a delight to have you here. Let's begin really simply. Why an ACG or American College of Gastroenterology guideline on gastroparesis? Well, Dr. Lacey, first of all, thank you for having me on. And I think the importance of it is that, you know, the last ACG guideline for gastroparesis was in 2013. So we felt that it was time to update the, the guidelines, you know, with the acknowledgement that unfortunately in that almost decade or so, there hasn't been any new FDA approved therapy. So we, we have to interpret these guidelines with a little grain of salt that there are you know, no new therapies on the market. Wonderful. So Linda, how was this guideline put together? Well, we started with you know, um, PICO, we created a PICO question. So we felt that the questions needed to be clinically relevant. So we stayed within the clinical relevance and, and came up with questions that we thought would be interesting or important uh, for clinicians uh, out there. And, and then the, the team of uh, authors, we reviewed it and then made, made some edits and then our um, librarians went and did a literature search. We then reviewed the, the literature. So uh, essentially, there were two reviewers for each of the articles, and we pared it down to um, relevant uh, articles that were then graded by our grade experts. And, and then we, using those, we developed the recommendations. Wonderful. And so just to clarify, for some of people who may not be quite as involved in research as you are, uh, Linda, the, the PICO stands for Population Intervention Comparator and Outcome. And then you mentioned the grade recommendations, which we think are really the best way to develop guidelines. It's a very strong way. And this guideline has a total of 20 recommendations. Uh, one focuses on controlling blood sugar to prevent a worsening of gastroparesis and four focus on diagnostic testing, and 15 focus on management. And so let's start simply with a question about the diagnosis of gastroparesis. What are the three key components to help make an accurate diagnosis of gastroparesis? I think first you have to have symptoms, right? So if someone's asymptomatic, um, you don't wanna make the diagnosis of gastroparesis. They do have to have delayed gastric emptying, meaning that there has to be uh, a valid test that um, diagnoses a slow emptying, and then a normal endoscopy to rule out presence of a mechanical uh, obstruction. So you don't want to diagnose someone with gastroparesis who has an obstructing, you know, 
gastric ulcer. Yeah, such a great teaching point. It's really that triad of symptoms and a normal endoscopy and then delayed stomach emptying by some validated test. And so that's a perfect segue. So if someone has symptoms of nausea and vomiting and maybe some upper abdominal pain or discomfort and the endoscopy, as you've mentioned, is normal, there's no evidence of a mechanical or anatomic uh, issue uh, to cause these symptoms, what's the best way to diagnose a delay in stomach emptying? Is it a four-hour solid meal test or is a breath test a reasonable alternative? Yeah, I think the four-hour gastric emptying test or scentigraphy is, you know, at this moment, we consider the, the gold standard. The challenge there, it, it's not available everywhere. And so I think the breath test is a reasonable alternative, much better than doing a 90-minute gastric emptying test or a liquid gastric emptying test or any other varieties I've seen, you know, coming through my office, you know, either do a four-hour solid gastric emptying test or don't waste time, energy, money doing it. And then uh, if you don't have access to that, then the breath test is a, is a nice alternative. Yeah. So for our clinical listeners here today and for our patients who listen in, really two great clinical care, uh, two great clinical pearls there uh, for clinical care, meaning if you do the gastric emptying scan, make sure it's a four-hour scan, not 90 minutes or 120 minutes, and it has to be a solid meal, not a liquid meal. So, Linda, that's great in terms of uh, diagnosis. Now, in terms of management, let's start very simply. What's the role of diet? Yeah, I think that it's the mainstay and it's the first-line therapy. And I typically tell patients to eat a small particle diet, and, and this is based on a study by Allison where they compared, you know, the small particle versus our more traditional gastroparesis diet, which is the low fat, low fiber uh, diet, which if you think about that low fat, low fiber diet, it's not very healthy. Um, and, and so this with small particles, you can still get the fiber in as long as it, it's, I think, it as partially digested by a blender cooking, et cetera. Yes, and you know your point about the fiber is is such a good point too, because so many people on this super low fiber diet become very constipated, and that can add more symptoms or exacerbate symptoms. So that's a good point. So thinking about managing symptoms of gastroparesis, which can be you know difficult because of the multiple symptoms, what's your approach? Uh, do you focus on the predominant symptom? Do we choose nausea or vomiting or pain or do you always start with the one that you kind of pointed that early on the one FDA approved medication to treat gastroparesis, which is metoclopramide? Yeah. So I look at four things when I talk to patients and, and just discuss therapies. First it is the predominant symptom, as you mentioned, whether it's nausea, vomiting, pain, bloating. The other one is the severity uh, of the symptoms. How severe are the symptoms in terms of impacting the patient's quality of life? Not so much the severity of the delay in emptying, but the severity of the symptoms and the impact on the patient. The third thing are the comorbid conditions. So patients with gastroparesis often will experience disordered sleep, constipation, irritable bowel, migraines, fibromyalgia, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So I take all those comorbidities into account 
when I think about recommendations of therapies. And then the final one is really pati the patient and their preferences. Do they want medications? Do they want more natural th therapies? What have they tried before? And what are they currently on? So those are all four factors that um, I take into account. So I don't follow a single algorithm. It's much more personalized. I like that your patients are lucky to have you. This really personalized approach, identifying the predominant symptom and the most bothersome symptom, identifying what's affecting their quality of life, and then really personalizing their therapy. Uh, that's wonderful. So, Linda, thinking a little bit more about metoclopramide, you know, many patients and providers are kind of concerned about using metoclopramide. And for listeners who don't know this field as well, that's also called Reglan, as you know. Do you think these concerns about metoclopramide are justified? Should we be using this medication? I mean, the, the risk of tardive dyskinesia is real with, with metoclopramide, uh, although I, I think the risk is lower than we thought. We used to think it was between 1% and 10% or even studies up to 15%. But, but in looking at some of the databases, it's probably less than 0.1%. Uh, there are people who have greater risk factors. So, you know, people who are taking other psychotropic medications, women, elderly, renal insufficiency, diabetics. So my approach is using the lowest effective uh, amount. And then if they can use it as needed or have drug holidays and the, the drug holiday is not um, evidence-based, but this is more, you know, Linda comfort-based to say, you know, using it, uh, having holidays decreases the risk, but mostly just educating the, the patients about what to look out for. All right, I would say maybe not evidence-based, but also based on 25 years of clinical experience, sounds pretty good to me. So um, some providers like to use prokinetic agents, and these are medications, as we know, that accelerate gastrointestinal transit and may help some symptoms of gastroparesis, prucalipride, a 5-HT4 agonist acting on a serotonin type 4 receptor, uh, has been used to treat symptoms of chronic constipation, and we know it's FDA approved to treat chronic constipation. Although its use would be off-label, what about the use of prucalipride for symptoms of gastroparesis? Yeah, so I, I do use prucalipride for gastroparesis, and there was a small study uh, done in, in Europe that looked at two milligrams of percalipride in patients with idiopathic gastroparesis and have found that it accelerated gastric emptying and improves symptoms. Now, when you use it off-label, it's hard to get it covered and it's can be very expensive, but keep in mind that, you know, 40 to 50, actually in our series was 60%, 40 to 60% of patients with gastroparesis may also experience constipation. So, you know, if I have, if I have a patient who has both gastroparesis and constipation, then I absolutely will use um, the percalipride. Wonderful. Circling back just a little bit to the nausea and vomiting, which is oftentimes a predominant symptom or symptoms in these patients. And we know that nausea and vomiting can be very difficult to treat. Clinicians are so busy. We all love algorithms. Um, if someone has persistent symptoms of nausea and vomiting and they've failed a reasonable trial of metoclopramide, do you have an algorithm for our listeners? Is there always something you jump to as number two or number three in your treatment algorithm? 
Yeah, so I used to not ha have an algorithm. Um, we did a survey years ago, or we conducted a survey years ago of patients with nausea and vomiting in term and listed every antiemetic neuromodulator that we've ever used and, and asked them to rank how they felt the efficacy was for, for them. So this was really a patient perception type of uh, study. And the, what floated to the top in terms of therapies that patients felt were most effective were promethazine, ondansetron, and then cannabis. So, you know, for my patients, I'll use promethazine, ondansetron. And as you know, Brian, promethazine, the downside of it, it has to do with sedation. So it's hard to work and um, be on promethazine. So um, I, I do use uh, ondansetron. Then I'll go, you know, if they feel, feel that, then I'll use some of the antihistamines. So like diphenhydramine, I borrow from our uh, pediatricians who use a lot of ciproheptidine and we use it for cyclic vomiting syndrome. So I'll use something like that for patients, especially if they're underweight or they have insomnia. Permethazine is great for weight and, and not permethazine, um, ciproheptidine is great for weight and, and for sleep and then borrowing from our chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting, mirtazapine, olanzapine. So th those are kind of the three buckets that, that I look at afterwards. Wonderful. And again, this is part of your art of personalizing the therapy to that patient, monitoring side effects, and probably using some things in combination, the concept of augmentation therapy. So shifting gears a little bit, um, Let's say that patients have some persistent symptoms, maybe nausea and vomiting, despite your best efforts, you've tried medication two, three, four, five. You know, some providers inject the pylorus with botulinum toxin, Botox, and preliminary data over 20 years ago looked kind of promising, but in retrospect, the data really wasn't that great. Do you re recommend Botox injection of the pylorus or should we discourage its use? You know, I think there's, emerging data in going back to the personalization that there are a subset of patients who would benefit from botulinum toxin or pyloric intervention. And, and you know, those are the ones with decreased distensibility of the pylorus. And, and I think of it in sort of in terms of symptoms because doing pyloric endoflip is not available to everybody is more of a volume pro problem, right? So if they have more bloating and a more regurgitative fullness, and they have more severe delay in a gastric emptying. So those are the patients that I think are more likely to respond to the botulinum toxin as opposed to nausea. I think nausea is so complex that it's not necessarily an emptying problem. So I don't necessarily use Botox for um, not symptoms of nausea. Yeah, I like the way you tease that out quite a bit because nausea is so complex and so many things can cause nausea. And, you know, just a simple Botox injection may not improve that at all. So gastric electrical stimulation. Um, it's been the treatment of gastroparesis for quite some time. It's a huge topic. We could spend the next hour talking about just gastric electrical stimulation. But if you had to choose a group of patients who are most likely to respond to that, who would you choose? It would be the nausea pa patients. Uh, so, 
So gastric electrical stimulation, I think, works on the kind of sensory of the vagal afferent part, parts of it, in, which I, I think helps with nausea. And there's the studies have shown that patients with kind of predominant nausea symptoms do better than the, the pain predominant symptoms for gastric electrical stimulation. Wonderful. And you know, you're right. The GI tract is a sensory organ, isn't it? Right. 90% of those nerves in the GI tract are sensory in nature and nausea is maybe part of that. So as we start to wind down here, Linda, there's been a lot of excitement in the field about a technique called GPOM, gastric peroral endoscopic myotomy. And for our listeners uh, who may not be familiar with this, this is where during endoscopy, an incision, a small incision is made in the pylorus to open it up to allow food to empty better. What's the data to support this endoscopic technique? Is this something we should do for all of our gastroparesis patients? Is this standard of care now, or is it just for a select few? I would say this would be for the select few. Um, just because we can cut, we shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily cut everybody. Um, so sort of the whole because you can do it, you shouldn't. Um, you know, the the data is emerging, it is quite promising. There was a, you know, G-POEM versus sham and crossover study that was done in Europe that showed that it did decrease symptoms and accelerated gastric emptying. And then in the sham group that crossed over, they also had a similar response. So very, very promising. But the question is, is who would respond to, to these therapies? Because we've seen that we're once you cut, it's permanent. We can't we can't go back. Um, and, and there, there was actually a really nice study that was done looking, you know, prospectively of in terms of who were the responders to GPOM. And, and what they found was that the patients who had the more severe symptoms of satiety, bloating, minimal or milder symptoms of nausea, and more severe delayed gastric emptying. So if they're four-hour gastric retention was over 50%, they were more likely to respond. So kind of similar to what I was talking about with the uh, botulinum toxin group, it's sort of the volume patients. I like that. And I like that approach. Again, personalize your patient. We have lots of treatment options out there. One size does not fit all. So Linda, this has been a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much. I know our listeners have learned so much. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I, I think, you know, gastroparesis is challenging for patients and clinicians treating patients because there aren't any FDA-approved therapies beyond the medical chromite. The one thing I would leave with is keep trying, don't give up uh, on patients. You know, augmentation is absolutely necessary, especially with the more severe symptoms. But don't forget as you augment to kind of go back and think about stopping things that are not working so that patients aren't on 20 different medications when, when they come in. But just to keep trying. Yeah, wonderful. And with such a great last teaching point, don't forget to keep looking at that medication list and maybe we can wean people off. So Linda, again, thank you. Uh, to our listeners on Apple, Spotify, and other streaming networks, I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. You've been listening to Gut Check, a podcast from the Gastroenterology Learning Network. Our guest today was Dr. Linda Wynn, Clinical Professor of Medicine at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. I hope all of our listeners found this just as enjoyable as I did, and I look forward to having you uh, join us again on Gut Check for future podcasts. Stay well.